Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, I'm just going to tell you now, go ahead and go to the cupboard and get you out a bag of popcorn and put it in the microwave because we got drama. Lots of drama to talk about, uh, and it's all litigious, too. Uh, I will put a pin in uh, a Cop City update that we will try and have. In fact, I reached out to uh, Dr. Jackie Eccles with the South River Watershed Alliance. Uh, Their efforts to stop construction, at least temporarily, due to some Clean Water Act violations that they allege are occurring, had been rebuffed. That uh, that request was denied, and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk with Dr. Jackie Eccles about that in a little bit. She was heading into a meeting right as I started putting together today's show, and that's fine. I want to give her time to do that meeting, and hopefully she'll catch up with me a little bit later. Y'all, the drama, the Fonnie Willis drama is... Ugh, I'm telling you, this season of Suits Atlanta, the best ever. So I'm going to start with an article that dropped uh, just minutes ago. Well, minutes ago for me. I'm starting on uh, today's show uh, about an hour and a half before it airs. Weekdays, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app at AmericaOneRadio.com. And of course, you hear it whenever you listen to it via podcast, if that's how you do it. So this was at about um, 3.20 this afternoon. Tamar Hollerman and Bill Rankin at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution filing this. Fulton County's district attorney today fired back at allegations she engaged in an improper, quotes, relationship with her top deputy accusing his estranged wife, this is Fonny's people accusing Nathan Wade's wife, of trying to obstruct her prosecution of Donald Trump and his allies. Fonny Willis has been subpoenaed to give a pretrial deposition in the divorce case of Nathan and Jocelyn Wade on January 23rd. In today's filing, however, the DA's attorney said that subpoena should be quashed, according to the AJC article. In it, they state that Jocelyn Wade, quote, has conspired with interested parties in the criminal election interference case to use the civil discovery process to annoy, embarrass, and oppress District Attorney Willis. That is what Sinke Oxum, Willis' attorney, argued. Questions about Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade, of course, you'll remember this last week, bust onto the scene and into public view last week when Ashley Merchant, an attorney for Trump co-defendant Mike Roman, the article states, contented in a court filing, the two were in a romantic relationship. Merchant also alleged without proof, let's remember that, y'all, without proof that Willis has benefited financially from the relationship because she and Nathan Wade had gone on what they call lavish vacations paid by Wade with money he made from Fulton County. Now, here's the thing. Nathan Wade doesn't just derive his income from this special prosecutorial case that he's on. I mean, he's not an attorney for Fulton County. He's working as a special prosecutor in this case. It's trying to trying to peg where money came from to pay for whatever trips that they may or may not have gone on. And again, no evidence of this has been presented yet. We have to wait for that. I believe uh, Scott McAfee set the date for February 15th today. I'll get to that in a little bit. Anyway, the attorney, uh, Merchant, did not include evidence of the alleged relationship, back to the article, between Willis and Wade, but suggested that proof was tied up in Wade's divorce case. Keep that in mind, y'all. The documents for which have been sealed. A hearing on whether to unseal the documents is scheduled for January 31st in Cobb County Superior Court. 
The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this writes, and 14 other media outlets have filed a motion asking to unseal the divorce records. Joycelyn Wade's attorney and merchant did not immediately respond to a request from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for comment. Here's where things get juicy, y'all. Popcorn ready yet? Oh, I hear it popping. The DA's filing said the Wade's marriage was irretrievably broken. Am I saying that word right? Irretrievably? I hate that word. And there is no hope of reconciliation. This is important, though. This is an important point, as you'll figure out as I continue down the article here. For this reason, Willis' deposition is not needed to resolve the divorce case, the motion said. Willis' motion also said the Wade's marriage was broken after Joycelyn Wade confessed to having an adulterous relationship with a longtime friend of Nathan Wade's. <gasps> oh, uh-uh. That's right. It wasn't Nathan cheating on his wife. Fonnie Willis filing today alleges that the marriage come asunder because Joycelyn had strayed on Nathan. Damn! <clears throat> Back to the article. If, however, media reports are any indication, Joycelyn Wade may intend to ask questions regarding the nature of any relationship with Nathan Wade, the motion said. Because the parties agree that the marriage is irretrievably broken, there's that word again, and the concept of fault is not at issue, there is no information that District Attorney Willis could provide that might prove relevant to granting or denying the divorce. Writers Tamar Hollerman, Bill Rankin, quick to point out, however, the filing did not address the nature of the relationship between Willis and Wade. Which, by the way, I will maintain, if there is something going on between the two of them, first of all, it, it doesn't sound like the divorce was caused by that relationship. If such a relationship exists, the divorce wasn't caused by that. It was caused by Miss Joycelyn straying on Mr. Wade. That said, if such a relationship does exist or did exist, it's still icky, funny, if it exists. That being said, this has all been a ploy from the jump. As she stated in this filing, just to sully her reputation and to muddy the process on a case wholly unrelated to the Donald Trump election interference case. It's true. If Joycelyn strayed on Nathan, then what Nathan does or doesn't do with Fonnie has no bearing on the Trump election interference case. Now, again, I said this just minutes ago. It's a bad look if there is something going on between the two of them. It doesn't scream proper. But Fonny has no relevance to the Joycelyn and Nathan Wade divorce proceedings. And so dragging her in to testify about it is of no relevance to that divorce. And again, there's that whole muddy area of, okay, so now what if they are having a relationship? Uh, what if there was or is a relationship? And Nathan, who, listen, he's qualified for this gig. He's been a judge before. You don't get much more qualified as an attorney than saying, well, I was actually also a judge. 
That being said, as eminently qualified as he is and may be for this case, if there is a relationship between Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, and in their capacity in this position, they also said, oh, let's take this trip. Let's go on a vacation together. Poor decision-making, right? It's not a... That being said, all along, the divorce stuff, dragging Fonnie in to testify about a divorce, absolutely useless to the divorce. Now, I will get back to that side of the story here in just a little bit, but I also want to get to a story that dropped around uh, 2.15 this afternoon. Richard Fawcett with the New York Times reporting, in exchange between the lawyers in the Georgia criminal case against former President Donald J. Trump, grew testy last week with Fonnie Willis, the district attorney leading the prosecution, telling the defense lawyers in an email that, quote, some people will never be able to respect African-Americans. Ooh. The email exchange, portions of which were obtained by the New York Times, unfolded in the days before and after a co-defendant of Mr. Trump's accused Ms. Willis of being in a romantic relationship with the outside lawyer she hired as a special prosecutor to manage the case. The email suggests that even before the explosive allegations emerged, conversations between the two sides were becoming strained. On Thursday, a judge in Atlanta, Scott McAfee, scheduled a hearing for February 15th on the allegations, which were made in a court motion seeking to have the special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, thrown off the case along with Ms. Willis and her entire office. The judge, Scott McAfee, of Fulton County Superior Court, ordered Ms. Willis to file a written response to the motion by February 2nd and to appear at the hearing, which will be televised, just as all the proceedings in the case have been. Delicious. The recent tense exchange unfolded in a group email thread that includes prosecutors and defense lawyers in the case. It began when the lead lawyer for Mr. Trump in Georgia, Stephen Sadow, expressed annoyance with prosecutors for ignoring a request he had made. On January 5th, he wrote to prosecutors, For the life of me, I cannot understand why you refuse to respond to the series of emails below. Five days later, Daisha Young, an executive district attorney who, like Miss Willis, is black, wrote that she and Miss Willis, quote, are both aware, especially as an African-American woman, find it difficult to treat us respectfully. She added, over the last month, the emails of some of you have been disrespectful and condescending, lacking both professionalism and decorum. Miss Young also said that she did not respond to some emails because they were disrespectful. Mr. Sadow who the New York Times is quick to point out is white, responded with an email in which he said that it was, quote, offensive, uncalled for, and untrue to suggest that racism was at play. He also said that Ms. Young's lack of response to some emails from the defense, quote, suggests a degree of haughtiness. And then Fonnie Willis chimed in. In the legal community and the world at large, some people will never be able to respect African-Americans and or women as their equal and counterpart, she wrote in a note addressed to Mr. Sadow, but sent to all of the defense lawyers, most of whom are white men. She continued, that is a burden you do not experience. Further, some are so used to doing it, they are not even aware they are doing it, while others are intentional in their continued disrespect. Mr. Fawcett, the New York Times continues, Ms. Willis also made a case for her own fortitude. Now you know I cannot be bullied, she wrote, so I do not even think anyone on this team thought someone was silly enough to try that as a tactic. As you are aware, I have now experienced some of the most powerful people in the country call me everything but a child of God, but yet here I and my team stand still pursuing justice. Further down, Fawcett recalls, as we all do here, 
Uh, in a speech last Sunday at a historically black church in Atlanta, Ms. Willis suggested racism was playing a role in the allegations against her and Mr. Wade, who is also black. The defendant who made the allegations, Michael Roman, a former Trump campaign official, argued in a court filing last week that Mr. Wade is not qualified for the job. He is seeking to have Mr. Wade, Ms. Willis, and her office thrown off the case. Willis, in her church address, did not address the allegations. She did not in the filing today either. That she and Mr. Wade were romantic partners. She noted the frequent racist threats she had been subject to since starting her investigation of Mr. Trump in 2021, however. Keep in mind now that the defendant, Donald John Trump, has called Fonnie Willis racist and once before insinuated that she was, quote, having an affair with a, quote, gang member. Of course, she refuted that and no evidence came of that as well. All right, up next, an update on the Deacon Johnny Holloman death, accidental death at the hands of Atlanta police. Press conference earlier today with the family and attorneys revealed their next steps. When the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Thursday. It was the evening of August 10th that a minor crash in southwest Atlanta led Johnny Holloman to needing the services of local police. Unfortunately, Johnny Holloman didn't survive that interaction with police. And it was today that the family of the 62-year-old church deacon gathered with their attorneys to announce that they were going to be filing suit against the city of Atlanta's police department, the police chief, Darren Sheerbaum, and the former officer, Kieran Kimbrough, in relation to the death of Johnny Holloman. I'm going to give you some audio from that press conference heard earlier today. All right. All right. Thank you all um, for being here good afternoon. I'm Maui Davis, um, one of the partners here at the Davis Bowling Law Firm. I'm joined here uh, by our managing partner, Attorney Robert Bozeman, uh, as well as our El Counsel uh, Attorney, uh, Attorney Brittany Dobbins. And uh, last but not least, for Attorney Harold Spence, who will uh, walk you all through the lawsuit that was filed today in the Northern District in federal court, uh, bringing uh, a civil rights action against the city of Atlanta, against the chief of police, and against the former Atlanta police officer, Kyrie Kimbrough. And I would like to start by just giving you some context as to how we got here. Um, as many of you know, it is a requirement that when you sue any uh, public entity such as the city of Atlanta or a county, that you provide them with notice, uh, an intent to sue, in this instance, an anti-litem notice. We did that. We did that, we filed that, we provided that to the city back in October of 2023, now that we're in 2024, in October. Um, as you all know, Deacon Holliman's life was taken on August the 10th. And so in October, after we had an opportunity to review uh, body cam footage and video, um, we determined that there was a violation of his civil rights. And so we provided that notice to the city of Atlanta. We've got no response at all. And so, last night I was thinking about this, and I was getting angry and upset about what I know that they're about to put this family through. Because 
because we handle civil rights cases, we know that the life of a civil rights case could be four to six years. And so I was getting angry about this family who have had to bury their father, memorialize him, continue to go into the street, call his name and demand justice, mm -hmm. that they're going to, on this front, have to go another four to six years. But then I thought about it, because we are a firm of faith. I thought about it, and I said, you know, God has to be moving. And so when I think about how God is moving, and I think about what Attorney Spence and the civil rights team has done in putting together this lawsuit, I said, I understand that. I understand that when you get to count five, and you read from count five on page 39, the next over 20 pages of what Atlanta police have done to Atlanta citizens and the Atlanta brass have done nothing in the way of discipline, that's why this lawsuit had to be filed. It had to be filed so that Deacon Holliman's life is bigger than just even to his family. It's really about Will Atlanta policing change? Will the culture change? We were saying it at the very beginning. This is a cultural issue. That this officer, who is a young man, in no other situation would he speak to an elder of 62 years old in that context except having been given a badge and a gun by the Atlanta police and then as we do our investigation, in addition to get this being given a badge and a gun, he's also been given the nod, the wink, the yeah, this is how we do in certain communities. And so I'm not mad. City of Atlanta decided not to respond to the anti-lighting notice. I'm grateful that we've had an opportunity now to pull back the veil. And we want these organizers to see all that they've been organizing, what they've been saying, they've been right. For all these years, they've been saying there's something that's wrong with this, the way policing is done in Atlanta, and we've just provided all of the documentation, and Attorney Spence will walk you through that. Reporter Carolyn Silva with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, they're on site to capture these quotes. Uh, we have the video that we just gave audio from the attorney, the uh, law firm's Facebook page. Uh, anyway, she recounts exactly how this went down in her piece at the uh, AJC. We'll have that in the show notes at ronshowatl.com. Holloman became unresponsive after being stunned with a taser and put into handcuffs by Kimbrough following a crash, a minor crash, by the way, August 10th in Southwest Atlanta. The GBI described Holloman as noncompliant and said he refused to sign a ticket. Now remember, APD, the city of Atlanta, has since changed their policy. on. It. In fact, some jurisdictions throughout Metro Atlanta have followed suit in insisting that people don't have to sign tickets, which can be akin to admitting guilt. Anyway, Davis argues that Holloman was not refusing to sign the citation, but only trying to explain to the officer what led to the crash. Body camera footage released in November by Atlanta police showed the entire encounter. At one point in the footage, again, we'll have that link in the show notes at ronchoytl.com, Kimbrough can be seen grabbing Holloman's arm while repeating, sign the ticket. Holloman replies with, okay, I'm going to sign the ticket. Kimbrough then appears to force Holman to the ground before stating that he would use his taser. Holman can be heard repeating, I can't breathe. 
The struggle continues for only a few more seconds, and then Hallman appears to fall unconscious. The video shows. Silva's reporting continues. Thursday's lawsuit accuses Atlanta police of violating Hallman's constitutional rights by physically restraining him, denying him free speech, and refusing to provide needed medical care. Davis framed the suit as one aspect of a larger protest movement against the use of excessive force in policing. He credited Kimbrough's firing to the work of activists who, quote, stayed in the streets and spoke out against Hallman's treatment and death. Naturally, to cure Atlanta Police Department's culture, they need a $109 million campus the size of a college campus outside city limits in DeKalb County. Environmental impact be damned, right? No, I did not misspeak, by the way. That price tag has gone up. It's now a $109 million price tag for the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility. And after a federal judge's decision today rebuking this South River Watershed Alliance lawsuit, yes, it is environmental impact be damned. More on that when the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Follow the Ron Show on Facebook at The Ron Show Radio. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Several sources, by the way, indicating that there is to be a second interview with former New England Patriot head coach Bill Belichick and the Atlanta Falcons. Yes, that New England Patriots, the New England Patriots that came back from a 28-3 deficit against the Atlanta Falcons to defeat them in the Super Bowl back in 2017. And I get it. Bill Belichick is, I believe, 26 games shy of the all-time wins record in the NFL, (laughs) which, I mean, I guess we'd be happy to see him celebrate as a Falcons head coach if he were doing that in year two. But does this roster tell you that this is a possibility? Is this team any closer to contending next year? Because that's the scenario. This is a win-now situation. The fan base wants a winner now. I know you didn't come here to hear me talk sports, but I got to get this off my chest. So, yeah, I mean, next season's got to be 10-plus wins. 10 wins and one or two playoff wins at least, right? So there's 12 of the 26 he needs, which means he's not going to be able to do it the next season either. So I I guess maybe early in the third season, there'll be a big ceremony when he gets that 27th win or 26th win to tie it, 27th to break it. But do you really think Bill Belichick's going to be around that long? I mean, I mean, I I don't mean that like in a, in a morbid fashion. I'm just saying, does he want to coach that long? I don't know. That's what he wants. He wants the all-time wins record. I know that. And I'm sure he'd love to hoist another Super Bowl uh, Lombardi trophy. So would I. My God, please. Yeah. Oh, my. To see the Falcons win the Super Bowl? This grown man would cry like a baby. I just don't know that he's the answer. He's the answer when he's got a quarterback named Tom Brady and a good defense. The Falcons have a decent defense? Is it good? Can it be good? Is there a Tom Brady waiting in the wings somewhere? And No, not the Tom Brady. I don't want the Tom Brady at this point in time. I want a Tom Brady. Is somehow getting Kirk Cousins the answer? Uh, I don't know if he's going to be available. He's also injury riddled now. Is there one in the draft? Well, that doesn't answer the win now scenario, does it? Although, although, it was a rookie Tom Brady that 
guided the New England Patriots to the Super Bowl. Is there a rookie Tom Brady in the draft? I mean, Tom Brady's like once in a generation. Anyway, I just thought I'd point out for those that care at all about the NFL, and there have to be a lot because I think it was 93 of the top 100 televised programs in the year 2023 were NFL football games. Yeah, you care. Some of some of you, a lot of you do. And this is a, an Atlanta-based political talk show and podcast, so you didn't come here to hear me talk sports, but I just had to point that out. Second interview for Bill Belichick. Jim Harbaugh did interview for the job earlier this week. I don't even know how I feel about him. Like I'm talking to two, I'm talking about two coaches who we know bend the rules and skirt fair and unfair on occasion to make things happen. And maybe they all do it, and we just have to get over that. I don't know. Okay, last segment we were talking about the Atlanta Police Department. Also in the news, uh, they're plum soon to be maybe possession the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility aka Cop City. It was a year ago that a police raid on the property that the public safety training facility is to be built on and is in the process of being built on despite all the legal wranglings that a police raid uh wound up killing Manuel Tortuguita Tehran Shot 57 times. Say what you will about whether or not he had a gun or whether shots were fired from inside the tent, outside the tent. 57 shots. Something led to a a, a frightened tree hugger type. (laughs) I mean, what else? An environmental activist, right? That's, That's what he was. To feel the need to possess a gun, to shoot a gun, and wound up with 57 holes in his body over forest in a city. I'm sorry, not in a city. Outside a city, in a state, in a country. It isn't even native to him. Now, you can argue the, I don't want to say sanity, but the sense in that. It's, it's wonderful to see young people passionate about the environment. And God knows we need, not just young people, we need my generation, baby boomers. We need more people to be passionate about the environment, for crying out loud. But it's been a year since Tortuguita died in that police raid, a raid that you have to question the necessity of. And yet at the same time, We get headlines uh, like today. Roddy Bunch with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting that a federal judge has shot down an attempt to halt construction of Atlanta's public safety training center after an environmental group sued over alleged violations of the Clean Water Act. Dr. Jackie Eccles, of course, head of the South River Watershed Alliance. She and I have texted back and forth a little bit today. was hoping to get her on, but uh, we're running up against deadlines, so I don't think that's going to be able to happen. Hopefully we'll get her on soon. Anyway, the South River Watershed Alliance filed a suit last August against the city of Atlanta and the Atlanta Police Foundation claiming the, quote, stormwater discharges from the Atlanta Training Facility construction site were not in compliance with the general permit. The lawsuit says members of the group worry about sediment from the training center site impacting Entrenchment Creek and wildlife. The suit claimed the construction site 
was cleared before required sediment storage bins were completed, resulting in stormwater from the site discharging into the creek. It asked that construction halt while the court determines if the city and police foundation violated the Clean Water Act. Well, listen, I don't know if this construction violated the Clean Water Act, but I do know this. I'm going to read this tweet from January 10th, just eight days ago, from the Atlanta Community Press Collective. Since 2021, environmentalists warned that the development of Cop City will cause dangerous levels of flooding in surrounding area. Yesterday, that would be January 9th, roads bordering the construction site flooded. At least one vehicle crashed after hydroplaning. No one was injured in the crash. I mean, looking at this video, yeah, there is an entire lane and shoulder of a road near the site completely underwater. And it looks pretty muddy, too. Like clayish, orangey clayish from, you know, clay being moved around, uh, dirt from the site. Anyway, U.S. District Court Judge J.P. Bouley in the Northern District of Georgia do, denied the request, saying that there's not enough evidence that the city has violated federal environmental standards to justify the pause. Saying, the court cannot find, at this stage of the proceedings, that plaintiff has presented enough evidence to prove there is a substantial likelihood that defendant's construction of the facility is discharging enough sediment to interfere with Entrenchment Creek's designated use. Sure, Your Honor. Clearly, our eyes deceive us. By the way, I did retweet that uh, that day and did so again just now so you can see that for yourself if you'd like when you follow the Ron Show at Ron Show ATL. Uh, the other headline facing the Atlanta Police public safety training facility. As they tell us, it's not just a police training facility. Although, can we can we secure a little spot there to, to, to better handle the cases like the Johnny Holloman situation so that we're not also spending money on these lawsuits? Uh, which, by the way, it's not going to be cheap. Speaking of not cheap, the cost of the Atlanta Training Center has jumped now to $109 million. And according to this piece, also written by Raleigh Bunch at the AJC, construction of the project is 75% complete despite continued pushback from opponents. Mayor Andre Dickens' administration gave an updated funding breakdown according to the article of the project to Atlanta City Council last night after misleading descriptions of the initial public contribution have clouded details surrounding Construction financing. Sorry, lost my place. Debate surrounding the project grew after the funding package passed by Atlanta City Council in June of last year was significantly more than the price tag taxpayers have been told they would cover. Since the proposal's inception in 2021, Riley writes, city officials have long echoed details of the funding makeup. If the city puts up $30 million, the Atlanta Police Foundation and its philanthropic partners would... Cox Media, by the way, among them, I believe lead among them, would handle the rest of the project's $90 million cost. But that was not the case. The actual cost of taxpayers is expected to be more than double what was promised. City Council unanimously, after all, passed a deal to dedicate up to $67 million in city funding to the construction and operation of the facility. 
The additional cost, Riley Bunch writes, comes in the form of $1.2 million in annual lease payments to the Atlanta Police Foundation, repaying the nonprofit organization for much of its contribution toward construction, as well as an additional $1 million in construction costs to build a gymnasium at the facility, which, okay. The city, by the way, for all intents and purposes, blames the rising cost on the protesters. And I will point out, I've said all along, I'm not really crazy about destruction of construction property, the companies that are working on the site, there to do their job, having to, you know, ensure their vehicles and equipment because of the damage being done on the site. Anyway, uh, Deputy Chief Operating Officer LaShondra Burke said, it's important for me to reiterate that even though we have seen an increase in the cost, there will be no additional city or taxpayer dollars going towards the project, saying that the uh, Atlanta Police Foundation will cover the elevated costs. But are we going to have to repay that cost at some point in time down the road? Uh, Burke said, because of the actions, she's reiterate, uh, referring to some of the on-site issues, off-site issues, because of the actions we've had to increase our outside security by $6 million. That does not include APD officers who are on 12-hour shifts covering the actual site. Uh, she also mentioned that the attacks have caused insurance on the project to increase by $400,000. Is this where I remind you, by the way, that Fulton County also had plans and are going forward with plans to build their own public safety training facility in, get this, Fulton County. Most of Atlanta, by the way, in Fulton County. And the the pitch we were getting all along about the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility was, oh, all the other jurisdictions that'll get to use it as well, and it'll be beneficial to them, and I guess we'll get money from them for doing that. Um, the new academy in Fulton County will be used by the Fulton County Police Department, Fulton County Sheriff's Office, the Marshal's Office, MARTA Police, Georgia State University Police, and some federal agencies. Who does that leave for the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility to use? Henry County's building their own, so it won't be them. The state already has a facility in Jackson, Georgia, so if it's, if it's them, why would it be them? And again, as I've said dozens of times on this show, why didn't the city of Atlanta and the Atlanta Police Foundation get with Fulton County and say, wait, you, you guys are spending how much? <clears throat> it says here $15 million. 15, not 50, $15 million to build this facility. Now, I have to imagine there's going to be some cost overruns <laughs> because there always are. But say it's 20, say it's 25. Atlanta is building one for $109 million, not even inside city limits. And could could we not have saved the taxpayers and or the Atlanta Police Foundation tens of millions of dollars by combining our efforts with Fulton County in a manner that, oh, I don't know, wouldn't have pissed off environmentalists from the jump? And, you know, here's the other thing. I mean, this would have been, you know, everybody's 
at least somewhat happy scenario. You you please the environmentalists by not utilizing a piece of land that was first of all promised as park and obviously has runoff issues, as the South River Watershed Alliance has pointed out or tried to in court anyway. But Fulton County wants to build a facility that is kind of smallish for them. They need to build a new facility because the one is aging, and it's also in the city of South Fulton, which is a new city since that place came to be. <clears throat> but everyone would have a better facility and <laughs> saving money. Like what South, I mean, sorry, what Fulton County wants to build, that $50 million, that's already been, that, that's a bond that's already been taken care of back in, in, in uh, 2021. So anything above that would be gravy. And here the city and the Atlanta Police Foundation have lots of gravy. And they're putting it in a place where it's unwanted. And I maintain that there may be some electoral repercussions that liberals, Democrats in the state of Georgia deal with in November of 2024 as they have continued to thumb their nose at grassroots activists on this case. This is The Ron Show. Back after this. Welcome back. Final segment of the Ron Show for Thursday. And actually, this could have been the lead story. Uh, but when did this come down? Well, I apologize. I'm just now getting to it. The folks at WABE, one of our local NPR affiliates here in Atlanta, are on the case. Shamion Cruz, I think that's how you say her name, uh, reporting that WABE obtained all six state troopers' personnel records, the six state troopers involved in the shooting and subsequent death one year ago today, of Manuel Paez Tortuguita Tehran. Anyway, uh, they obtained all six state troopers' personnel records, including promotions, departmental assignments, commendations, and allegations of misconduct. Are you sitting down? Still got some of that popcorn? They show at least one state trooper had previously been involved in a case of friendly fire, and another state trooper voluntarily resigned from the state's SWAT team months after Tehran's shooting. A reason for his decision is not listed in the documents, and Georgia State Patrol did not immediately respond to a request for comment. According to body camera footage released by the Atlanta Police Department, multiple law enforcement agencies were clearing the woods of protesters camping near the site that they call Cop City January 18th, 2023, when the officers heard four distinct gunshots, then dozens more. Is this target practice, one officer says in the video. Later, he adds, man, you f*** your own officer up. Tehran's family and the activist community seized on the comment, almost immediately suggesting that the state trooper wounded during the shooting could have been hit by friendly fire. But the Georgia Bureau of Investigation shut down those rumors, citing its ongoing investigation at the time that had so far revealed Tehran had a gun that he had purchased in 2020. Now, local reporters have been asking for this sort of information all along. As, in fact, it was pointed out in the article, a special prosecutor cleared the state troopers at the scene of any criminal charges in October. He has declined to disclose any additional records until a separate RICO and domestic terrorism case. Remember that one where they raided the Atlanta Solidarity Fund and dragged three of them out in handcuffs in this surprise raid? Speculation is not evidence, the agency said in February. The GBI is continuing to investigate the incident from January 18th and is being as comprehensive in the investigation as possible. The initial assessment given by the GBI concerning the incident is still valid. Our investigation will continue to look at every aspect to include statements made at the scene and each will be evaluated. Meanwhile, the special prosecutor assigned to review the case did not respond to a request for comment on whether the possibility of friendly fire was even considered. Actually, I added the word even. According to the GBI, Tehran fired first from inside a tent, wounding Trooper First Class Jerry Parrish. Other state troopers fired back. The GBI alleged there's no direct video evidence of the shooting, 
only the aftermath, because the troopers generally don't wear body cameras. The gunshots heard in the videos are from those worn by nearby Atlanta police officers. Anyway, let's get back to the troopers' records here, according to this WABE story. And by the way, we'll include it in the show notes, ronshowatl.com. The state troopers' personnel records state all six were members of the state's SWAT team and that they were allowed to return to full duty from administrative leave with pay five days after the shooting. One of the troopers, Jonathan Salcedo, was investigated in 2015 for firing a weapon he was not qualified to use during a shootout that left a 36-year-old man dead and two deputies hurt, according to the documents. A district attorney in northwest Georgia found one of the deputies who had been wounded was struck by friendly fire. However, Salcedo was exonerated after the local district attorney and the Georgia Department of Public Safety agreed that no policy had been violated. That same year, Salcedo was investigated for several incidents, including operating his vehicle, quote, in an unsafe manner and an, quote, at-fault collision. He was issued a, quote, documented verbal warning and a, quote, letter of concern. But his supervisors still commended him in his performance reviews for, quote, usually making sound judgments when making decisions. Court documents show he was also the subject of several lawsuits, but over the years, he continued to be transferred and promoted. And I'm seeing this little bit of a surprise headline, I guess, mostly because I there's inclement weather coming to Washington, so folks are scattering. I'm going to read this from Fox News. The headline, House votes to avoid government shutdown after Speaker Johnson bucks GOP rebels. Well, how much longer will he be, will he be Speaker of the House? Go ahead and start the clock now. Uh, the House Representatives Thursday voted to advance a short-term government funding extension, Fox News writes. That'll, by, by the way, carry the government through early March. Uh, the bill now goes to President Biden's desk where he will have to sign it before the end of the day on Friday to avert a partial government shutdown. It passed 314 to 108 and nearly split the House GOP in half. 107 Republicans voted for its passage, 106 opposed. House leaders rushed to put the bill, called a continuing resolution uh, resolution on the floor Thursday afternoon, soon after the Senate passed it 77 to 18, brought for a vote under a suspension of the rules, meaning it foregoes a procedural vote, but then needs two-thirds of the House lawmaker support for final passage rather than just a simple majority. So once again, the Republicans uh, had to get a new House speaker, Took them a few votes, several votes actually, over several days to get a new House Speaker because the shut it down at all cost contingent of the GOP insists it be that way. And once again, they've been let down by their House Majority Leader. Uh, Representative Chip Roy from Texas, what say you? By the way, it does not matter who's sitting in the Speaker's seat or who's got the majority. We keep doing the same stupid stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Not a lot of room for error with the GOP holding 220 seats. Democrats with 213, there are two vacancies. One being uh, former House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, speaking of doing the same stuff. Um, And the recently expelled George Santos. His seat, by the way, is up for a special election. And I'm going to read for you uh, some data on that real quick. 1,533 ballots have been returned from some uh, of the early mail-in vote. By party registration, they are... Plus 22 percentage-wise for Democrats. The early vote in 2022 was uh, plus 13 for Democrats. 58% are women, whereas in in, uh, 2022, it was 55%. So that's looking good for Democrats. 
Uh, I mean, if Democrats pick up one of those two seats that were both Republican, that'll uh, give them a slimmer majority. I'm, sl- I'm sorry, a slimmer minority. It will be a 221 to 214. It's seven votes, just seven votes separating the two. It could be as little as five votes. It could be as many as, if I do the math right, that would be nine. But it doesn't look like it's going to be nine. It looks like it's going to be a seven-vote slim majority for the GOP once these seats are filled. Heading into an election cycle. Fascinating stuff. That's going to do it for The Ron Show. I thank you for listening. We've got lots of show notes. Catch them all at ronshowatl.com. Back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the American Radio app, americanradio.com, and then wherever you podcast. Have a good one.